Hi. Hi. How are you? Surviving. Yeah, yeah. same. It's March. <laughs> um, I am Catherine. I'm Holland. And we, together, are school spirits. We're school spirits. And we just wanted to give teachers an opportunity to hear about current research because we didn't get to when we were teachers. Yeah. I used to teach English. I used to teach math. And here we are in a doctoral program that seemingly never ends. Just like <laughs> just like that pause. <laughs> okay. Today's topic was a listener request yeah. on homework. Man. It was a deep dive. Uh, we did a lot of homework to get this homework <laughs> episode created. I'm really excited about this though. And I do want to just preface by showing my own bias. And that is that I'm very anti-homework. I think we've talked about this a lot before. I'm sure I'm we have. I'm pretty sure we're both anti-homework. So. <laughs> no one should ever have homework, period. <laughs> okay. Our drink. So the drink for this episode, Catherine came up with called a dirty March teeny. Um, Cause March does teachers dirty. Yeah, and she said she didn't have spring break during March, which I did, so that was helpful. But... No, all you New Englanders, you know how long that March is, just four weeks of five days <laughs> straight. I feel like it might be really long now because I think a lot of teachers are pivoting back to like in-person instruction, um, and so I'm sure that makes, you the know, like, just that transition, and also so many people are doing the hybrid thing, like... The longest March there ever was. Oh, so God. we have a maybe disgusting martini for you. <laughs> so it follows a typical uh, dirty martini recipe. So two parts vodka, half a part, I guess half an ounce <laughs> dry vermouth. And then it should be half an ounce like regular olive juice, like green olive juice, but all together <laughs> we're Kalamata olives. Yeah, so, so we got... Half an ounce of oily Kalamata <laughs> olive juice to make a particularly pink, dirty martini. It's definitely dirty because you can see the olive particles just floating in there. <laughs> it's very cloudy, almost opaque. <laughs> very excited about this adventure. <laughs> Cheers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, I like that you can see... What is it? The legs of wine, you know, where it goes yeah. up the side. You can see like the legs of the oil from the olives on the side of the glass. It's a leggy martini <laughs> and it's not as bad as I thought. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. And it, it is strong. <laughs> well, that's what you want out of a dirty martini. It's not as briny. It's not as olivey as a regular martini. Yeah. It's like, I feel like... Kalamata olives are less olivey. They're like more of like your introductory olive. Yeah. And so this might be your introductory, introductory your transition from a regular martini to a dirty. You Just, do have to scrub your glasses out well afterwards though. You have to, it's like, it's a little more oily and less briny. <laughs> mm. So mm. it's really nutritious is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> Healthy fats. <laughs> this is called the Mediterranean diet. <laughs> a dirty martini. <laughs> I'm gonna drink it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Why not? All right, we will touch base on how we feel after one of these martinis, <laughs> martinis, <laughs> in a little bit. But in the meantime, I have an article for you. Yes, please. I want to hear about it. 
Um, my article is called, and the title is, I actually started to scream emotional and mathematical trauma from doing school mathematics homework. When I saw the title of this, I thought that you started to scream because you're like, whoa, this is exactly what I wanted to read. I am screaming right now, but this is a wild title. So I'm very interested in this. I know. Um, it hooked me. It is from 2011. So I broke the rules, but I couldn't turn away from that title and I was not disappointed. Um, it was published in educational studies and mathematics and there are two authors and they do not have English names. And so if I mispronounce them, I apologize. But, or if you know how to pronounce them, let me know. The first author's name is spelled Mm T-R-O-E-L-S. And so we're going to call them Troels Langa. Ooh, that sounds very Norwegian. Good good for you. Thank you. It's my high school years of German coming in and helping me out. (laughs) And... He is at Western Norway University of Applied Sciences in the Department of Language, Literature, Mathematics, and Interpreting. Whoa, that seems like a very wide department. I know, but it feels like you and I could both... Uh, Yeah, we would totally be professors there. ...thrive (laughs) there. The second author is Tamsin Meany, also at Western Norway University of Applied Sciences in the same department... I could find a little bit more on her. She is a professor of mathematics education and involved in teacher prep programs. And her specialties are indigenous education, early childhood education, and teacher development. But wild card, both of these authors who are currently at Western Norway University of Applied Sciences were not there at the time of publication. Mm -hmm. Both of them were instead at Charles Sturt University in Wagga Wagga, Australia. That's incredible. I was wondering, I wonder if she studied indigenous education in Australia. Yes, like, that's what my feeling is. to Norway? I think that's what my feeling is, but I did not investigate that further. Hmm. That's super interesting. But they both have been all around the world doing this work, which I think that's is cool. really fascinating. Yeah. The article is a case study of two girls ages 10 to 11. You love a case study. You know I love a case study. (laughs) In a Danish year four class, which I think is probably fifth grade, but I don't know how they handle kindergarten over there. Okay. And like the the ages are about fourth grade age. Um, The data comes from a larger study that it was exploring children's perceptions about their own math education. And the data from this particular paper comes from interviews, but classroom observations were also part of the larger study. The author's main argument, I'm going to hit you with it first, is that when homework consists of practicing calculations procedurally, it can be emotionally and mathematically traumatic for children, especially those who find math difficult. Yeah. They center their analysis around children's sense of agency, which I know you love. Mm -hmm. Um, specifically they talk about the meanings that these children ascribe to experiences and the physical actions they can or can't take. So that's how they're thinking about agency in two ways. With this lens, they focus on the students' narratives. So their interviews, they ask students to tell them about a time and they took a recounting of that student's telling of this past time. Mm -hmm. They say clearly that they aren't interested in factual retelling of events but the ways that children highlight and weave together the features that had the most resonance for them. Which makes sense, yeah, if you're thinking about, like, what emotional impact of this have, you would remember things differently. Exactly. Yeah. 
Case one is Isabella. And Isabella talked about this time that she was doing homework at home where she was practicing her multiplication tables at home with her mom. She had to memorize the tables at home and then would be tested on them at school. This was like the sixth tables, I think. And the assigned homework was to play this game that she knew about with flashcards. And Isabella's mom primarily was the driver of this game. She set it up and monitored it. If Isabella got a a times table wrong, she returned the card to the pile and had a chance to do it again. They highlighted one of the benefits of homework is that it gives opportunities in certain settings for kids to make mistakes or do things in a way that they wouldn't be able to at school, like put the card back in the pile because she's not being tested at home. In her case, there was an alignment of beliefs between home and school. So both the activity at home and what math she was doing in school value knowing these multiplication tables, even though it was done through memorization and not through understanding of number relations. So the mom supported this. Isabella knew that was the case in both settings. So there was this alignment. She like went to home from school and knew what to do. In this situation, Isabella's mother took on the role of the teacher at home, and Isabella largely took on the role of the student in this relationship with this game. However, Isabella saw herself as having limited agency. The actions were predetermined parts of the game that were policed by her mom. So the mom was setting up the game, making sure she was doing it right, having her complete it, all that. Her narrative, when she recounted this time, highlighted themes of obedience and compliance with regards to math and math homework. This is super interesting because this is definitely going to relate to my article. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the narrative on homework doesn't differ (laughs) between a lot of kids. Okay. Case two, you're going to love. Case two is Maria. In Maria's homework experience, she talked about doing calculations like addition and subtraction. So she wasn't doing her times table. She was doing calculations. Her parents tried unsuccessfully to help her because there was a mismatch between how Maria and her father felt the calculations Mm -hmm. should be done. So Maria's dad was drawing on his past experiences in math and was like, this is how you do subtraction. Mm -hmm. And Maria was like, this is not how I do subtraction. And so they they basically were at odds with each other during this homework time because they were not in alignment with how to do these problems. For Maria, learning required more than memorization of a procedure, but her dad didn't have the skills to explain the method that he was trying to show her. I feel like this is this is similar to like all those posts that you see parents making about like common core math and they're like, this is ridiculous. This is not how I learned how to do it, which I think, yeah, like relates so much back to the homework that kids are being given and like parents having to figure out like how to do it in that method. Absolutely. Because homework is pretty much the only lens that parents get into the concepts that students are learning. Mm -hmm. Like they have a lens via grades into how well they're performing, but not the content or the concepts. Yeah. Maria got very frustrated and she described physically acting out in reaction to the stress that she was under during homework times, like screaming at her parents, storming out, shutting doors. 
I mean, I've tutored a lot of kids that parents have brought me in being like, I just can't do like, we just can't do homework together anymore. Like this is not an abnormal reaction, this type of behavior during homework when kids get really frustrated, especially because having to have these parents transition into these teacher roles is not comfortable. Students have been with teachers all day. The title of the paper I'm screaming comes from a quote that she said when she was explaining her frustration. Ultimately, Maria told her parents not to help her anymore with her homework because the authors described her, quote, finding the inner strength to persevere independently. So she basically was like, I don't need your help. I'll figure it out on my own (laughs) because it was it was so traumatic for her to get help from her parents. Maria's sense of agency emerged when she asked her parents to stop helping her, but only after she experienced this emotional trauma of trying to do the homework with her parents. She also experienced mathematical trauma from only seeing math as a set of seizures, procedures to be implemented correctly. So because she couldn't like nail down these procedures and understand where they were coming from, she felt really discouraged mathematically. While both of these students were able to have more agency over their bodies than in school settings, particularly with Maria, who was able to mm, walk yeah, up and get a, walk away. This is not always the case, and it still wasn't at a level that didn't inflict trauma. And homework also tends to put parents into the role of the teacher and students into the role of the students outside of a school setting, which alone is problematic. But if there isn't a parent at home, then you can think of this relationship as children who are sent home, forced to be put in this role of a student with no teacher around. Yeah. And that's just setting them up to fail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Homework can reinforce and exacerbate school instigated trauma by taking over time and spaces where other mathematical learning could take place. Mm-hmm. So their whole thing is, why are you taking this space that kids deserve to have control over their bodies, have some sense of agency over what they do. And instead taking that time and just recreating a school classroom, but in a more frustrating way because they have to deal with their parents or no parents or support at all, where instead that space and time could be used in a positive way to develop positive experiences and agency. Standout quote. Given that procedural mathematics homework has the potential to contribute to children becoming traumatized, then the schooling system and mathematics education community should discuss why this is inflicted on children Mm -hmm. and their families. So obviously you can tell that the authors are also pro no homework. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My teacher takeaways. The fact that both these girls were given procedural math for homework was a contributing factor to their trauma, especially for Maria, who recognized this misalignment between homework and school. So teachers, your homework should reflect your classroom. If you value conceptual understanding and exploration in your class, you should value that for homework as well. I know a lot of schools that push for conceptual understanding and rich learning experiences in the classroom and then say that homework is the time to promote this procedural fluency that kids oh, okay, need. Yeah. But 
what this article is showing is that that actually creates a really hard time for students to understand what math is if you're telling them in school math is explorative and conceptual but at home it's not and that really affects their mathematical identities another takeaway for me is that teachers should only get a, give homework that they know all students can feel successful with independently. Our teacher takeaways are going to be very similar. <laughs> <laughs> That's good because it applies to both math and yeah, yeah, teachers. Yeah. But the experiences of these of these girls show that if you aren't confident that they can be successful at this homework, all you're doing is inflicting trauma on them mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. creating these really bad relationships between them and their parents if they have parents to help them or making them feel less mathematically successful if they don't have parents to help them. Unless you're sure that every kid that you assign this homework to can be successful at it, it's not helpful to yeah. them. Yeah. And then lastly... The students in this article didn't have any control over what their homework was. Homework for them was ultimately a tool of power for teachers to control their time and bodies outside of the school mm -hmm. setting. Providing students choice can help to mitigate some of these issues, especially if those choices include bodily agency, like go outside and explore math in your yard or in your community. Mm -hmm. um, a colleague of ours, Madison Noe, is doing a lot of really cool work with mathematical play around the home. So, so giving choice about ways that they can use their bodies and not just be stuck doing procedural math is one way to mit mitigate these issues if you have to give homework. <laughs> Providing loose guidelines on what it might mean to think about math outside of school can help to mitigate more of those issues. So if you don't have to turn anything in or you don't have to sit down and do a pre-prescribed assignment and you just get to talk to kids about what math is around them, that's even better. But I still stand by my stance that the best thing to do is not assign kids homework because you are setting them up to fail they are going to think about what they want to think about anyway. So you're just taking up more of their time. You're causing so many issues between them and their parents. You're inflicting trauma on them at home. You're setting them up to not be successful, to not see themselves as successful mathematicians. And there are ways that you can get around it if your school has homework policies. Yeah, I was thinking about how um, when I was a teacher... I think it was like what five percent of the grade had to come from homework assignments mm -hmm. or whatever and i would just be like this random whatever you know warm-up or something i would just put those in because like who's checking to see that it's actually homework that i collected for them you know like it's oh i didn't ever collect homework i would have like one problem like it like an independent problem at the end of my class and I would always make sure they had time to do it in class. And if they couldn't do it in class, they could, come, well, I was there so they could get help yeah. or they could like come see me yeah. after school. Cause it was just one problem. It wasn't like I need, I need to carve out an hour to like see her with homework help. And that would be like my homework is I would check the next day that you yeah. completed the problem, like in class the day before because I had to have it. But I also would just walk around and if there was like words on the paper, Full credit. 
Like I didn't look at what they were. I didn't have time. I didn't have time for that. Yeah, I had 150 yeah. kids. Yeah. I get it. I'm not grading all that anyway. It's better for you teachers if you don't give homework and your kids. It's better for everyone except for administration. Which like, but but then because it's a form of control. Exactly. That's, that's what it serves to do. Exactly. Well, I really like that article because <laughs> we're going to talk more about surveillance and control with my article. <laughs> so are you ready? I am now. I just needed to get another <laughs> sip of Kalamata Olive and vodka. <laughs> okay. So my article title is How Homework Shapes Family Literacy Practices, which like makes so much, so much sense, but it's wild how homework is now shaping the like the at-home practices that are being done by families mm-hmm. and like sad in a way. Um, so this is by Carolyn Clark and Barbara Comer. And it's from a 2019 issue of The Reading Teacher, which is a practitioner journal. Mm-hmm. So it's it's already written for teachers. It's very accessible. Um, so like that obviously made my work a little bit easier. But I do they do use some more difficult theoretical pieces to explain their the, the, the driving concept behind their article. So I'll explain those a little bit. But the authors, Carolyn Clark, I didn't find much about her. She's a part-time faculty member in the education department at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax, Nova Scotia in Canada. And Canada is where this research is taking place. I love all of these international articles on homework. Yeah. And Barbara Comer, and she's a research professor in the School of Education at the University of South Australia. So she works on research projects concerned with literacy development, teaching, and socioeconomic disadvantage. She published a book called Literacy, Place, and Pedagogies of Possibility. She's published lots of articles for teachers and teacher educators. Um, And her current research focuses on how young children are learning to write and how early career teachers understand and attempt to enact quality teaching in schools located in low socioeconomic status areas. Overall, the basic premise of this article is that reading homework, like these specific programs and surveillance methods of reading logs, reading logs, super huge. I don't know if you ever saw them, but this is just, this is like very normal practice. These forms of reading homework are shifting how families are engaging with literacy practices so that it's more like school-centered work instead of a social activity that has been in the past. Wow. So I make reference to this later in just a minute, but like, do you remember reading that Shirley Bryce Heath study about like Roadville and Tracton? Yes. Okay. So she talks about how like bedtime reading is this normal, like middle-class practice Um, So we're going to talk about that in a minute. But what's happening is these reading programs are replacing that practice. Oh, no. I hate that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the Pizza Hut program, but you don't get pizza. Oh, my God. We're about to talk about Accelerated Reader. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So the design of this study is it was an institutional ethnography, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. And they conducted research in two communities in Newfoundland. I think that's how you say it, right? It is. I only know because of the dogs. (laughs) Um, and so this is in Eastern Canada. So two communities, Riverdale and Plainview. So this is a lot like that Shirley Bryce heat study, um, because these two communities are chosen because Riverdale has a lot of working class families and Plainview has more middle class families, but they're not super diverse in other ways. They're both white English speaking Christian communities. Um, but so it's mostly just the difference in economic status. 
They, in this study, they specifically focus on families with kids in third grade since this is when testing begins in Canada. And uh, that's when big testing starts in the U.S. too, right? I mean... I like how you said that, like, big pharma. That's when big testing starts here. It is, though. Think about it. Big testing of the capital T. It's like the article about big pasta and the bucatini. Yeah, exactly. Big Pearson. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I hate so and love that. They're focusing on families with kids in third grade. They use teacher-focused groups, family interviews, and homework artifacts for the larger study. But for this article, they focus on the take-home reading programs from the schools using two different teacher-created documents as well as interviews. So they're using a few different theories to talk through their findings. So they're using Foucault in here. So You love a good article based on Foucault. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't mind it. <laughs> Foucault's theories of discursive practices and subjectivity. Faircloth's critical discourse analysis. Can I stop you for a second, yes. though? Are you going to give gonna like, you. the one-second highlight of like yes. Foucault? Because mm -hmm. I feel like mm -hmm. I need a reminder. In the next sentence. Okay. I'm literally about to do that. <laughs> uh, critical discourse analysis, and then Griffith and Smith, I haven't heard of them before, but they have this feminist approach to mother's work for schooling. Oh my gosh. I feel like this would speak to, have you seen all of the stuff that Jess Clarko yeah, is posting her. on Twitter about the disproportionate work mm -hmm. that mothers are doing in the pandemic? Yeah. 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 So this is a, this is a thing that people have study, like this feminist approach. So in using Foucault, so he says that the way that we talk about particular groups shapes how we see them and how they see themselves. This this is also the idea of surveillance. Um, this is going to come up later, but basically, like this is based on this idea of the panopticon, this like all-seeing eye. So you have this force that is like attempting to shape a body by constantly watching it and telling it what it can or cannot do, right? And so this will come up, but when you were talking about like parental control that parental control is now like shaping what students are able to do, but that is also dictated by the school. So the mm -hmm. school is enacting this surveillance as well. So they call it in this article, hierarchical surveillance, which is wild because it's ultimately these parents, especially middle-class families that are like, that feel the pressure of this. Yeah. That like, they're like, we have to do all of these things. And I mean, parents in all classes, I think feel this, totally. but I think that the like, just the rule following that's like inherent yeah, is very interesting. But Foucault in general, for people who don't know him, mm -hmm. mostly writes about power and control and yes, how that... exactly. And, and, and not necessarily shows. power and control like, like immediately physically, but power and control through the ways that we speak about things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um, it's a tough read, but interesting content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a read. little Foucault episode one time we can do a little Foucault <laughs> just a little Foucault just a little uh so so in using Foucault they want to explore how parents are constituted by the texts addressed to them and the texts they're required to use with their children so like those letters that are sent home mm -hmm. and they're saying like this is what you have to do for your kid like how that constitutes who they are as parents at home um and then well I'm not going to go into Faircloth's critical discourse analysis <laughs> but that's just basically like digging into the words and figuring out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then with Griffith and Smith, um, they're, they're using this to think about how asking parents to be aides in teaching requires reorganizing time and resources to engage in an activity that is ordained by the school and like how there, there are very real consequences from that. 
So interestingly, they focus on two middle-class families in this article. And the reasoning is that we, they say that we tend to focus on how poor or working class families have difficulties navigating school-related issues, but their work shows that how even these middle-class families struggle and are affected by homework practices. So it's not just like, oh, I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm working a lot. I don't necessarily have all the time, resources or educational attainment, whatever that might mean. But they're saying like these middle-class families that we expect to like have all the quote unquote, like social capital still aren't able to do all of this, or they're still being constrained by homework. I think that's a really important way to study homework because if they can find that it's not benefiting middle-class families, then it sure as hell is not going to be benefiting working class families. So (laughs) then you have, then you just have like a huge group of families in the country that are not benefiting from homework. Just saying. Yeah. So I said that they're talking about take home reading programs. And so a couple of these are just like the school is giving them. And the one is like an official program. So one of the take home reading programs, um, they call it just book reports. So in one school, all of the third grade teachers sent home a letter at the beginning of the year explaining their expectations, get this, for a book report to be done by the end of every month of the school year. That's my nightmare. Okay. It is wild. So there's there was they included this list of acceptable projects and included like postcards, dioramas. I'm saying, was there dioramas? Oh, I had oh, to make so many oh dioramas. Dioramas at the wazoo. <laughs> Dioramas, mobiles, newspaper reports, story quilt, whatever that is. Um, And they couldn't do any of these ideas more than once. (gasps) So you pretty much have to be an expert in how to do these options. These are also the type of projects that parents just end up doing. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like the parents are just doing it at this point. It's a book report for the parents. It also costs so much money to make a diorama. Oh my God. That's one of my points. That's one of the points. Too. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's the cost of all of this stuff. I swear I did not read this article or your notes on it. You're just making me think of all these things. I'm experiencing my own homework trauma right now. Uh, so what they did was they looked at the discourse of this letter that spelled out the requirements for the book reports. They point out that there's this we throughout the letter that carries a lot of power. So we, the teachers, believe this and you, the parents, must make it happen. So the letter clearly shows how parents are given the responsibility to make these book reports happen. So they say that it places teachers, like I was saying, in this dominant power relationship and produces the hierarchized, hierarchical? Hierarchical. I'm going to say, because I think they say hierarchized, but I'm going to say hierarchical surveillance. (laughs) Said that word a lot. Uh, So second reading program, accelerated reader. Y'all know the deal. Um, so the interesting thing with Accelerated Reader is that they use this program in addition to whatever other take-home reading programs the teachers were using. So basically, this program with all the tests and points usually leads to an emphasis on extrinsic rewards for reading. And so it limits motivation as well as choice because you have to choose what's on their lists or like what's in your area, what's recommended to you. Neither family that's in the study, neither one reported good experiences with it. Kids would get upset or they just didn't want to read anymore. I think for theirs, they got chocolate. I mean, we got, you got pizza, right? I got pizza. The You got a personal pan. Personal pan pizza from Pizza Hut. And I have to tell you, Holland, <laughs> I don't know if you know this about me, but I love Pizza Hut. I love it so much. I have since Still? I was a small child... I cannot drive past a Target without stopping and getting a personal pan and breadsticks. <laughs> I did 
not know this. If I were to choose any like chain pizza, it would be Pizza Hut every time. Who are you? I don't know you. Right I now. used to, whenever we had like a half day at school, I would make my mom take me to Pizza Hut lunch buffet. <laughs> oh, the Pizza Hut lunch buffet was killer. Killer. <laughs> and it was the only place you could get Pizza Hut dessert pizza. I want it right now. And so if I had... Maybe not Pizza Hut, but dessert pizza. So I would be, like, so motivated to get my, like, reading done by, like, whenever I had a half day so that I could go and get a free pizza at the Pizza Hut lunch buffet, which I know sounds counterintuitive, but when you're a small child, it makes sense to you. (laughs) And the day I outgrew Pizza Hut's reading program was one of the saddest of my life. And then I realized that Pizza Hut's personal pin pizzas are like $3. But still. But still. You would still take a free one right now. And I loved to read. But I don't remember having to... They didn't tell me what to read. I could just read whatever I wanted. I Did you have to, to take the test? Number. The Pizza Hut tests? No, no, no. The accelerated reader tests. Oh, I don't know. So I, I, we had to take the test when I was in middle school. I think it was just like fifth and sixth grade. You got on the computer and you had to like take these multiple choice tests or stuff. No. So at a certain point, I would just like, I would be like, I kind of know the plot to that thing. And I would just like take as many tests as possible just to like rack up points. And it was meaningless. Like I would, I would, I would like check out a book and just like, like, you know, thumb through it really quickly so that I could take the test and see like, and then you could just keep retaking the tests. So that no, you mine was them. like, I just had to write down all the books I had read and my parents had to sign off that I was not lying. Yeah. Well, acceler- the actual accelerated reader program is way more intense than that. It's ridiculous. So, um, so let me tell you about the third reading program. This is a time-based reading program. This is pretty common. So this was, again, encouraged by a group letter from third grade teachers, and it specified 20 minutes of reading per day. They have to shade in the calendar square, depending on what type of text it is, like nonfiction, fiction, da, da, da. Parents have to initial each square. And then if they do what they're supposed to, they get something from the treasure chest at the end of the month. But the way the letter is written, it makes it sound like the teachers are assuming no reading is taking place unless like they're forcing them to do 20 minutes of reading. And it once again forces the surveillance system on parents. Also, there's more emphasis again on extrinsic rewards. And for one of the families, they said that the time limit resulted in kids not doing anything beyond that minute. Like, the kid would read really slowly and then 20 minutes was up and he'd be done. Mm-hmm. And like, that's totally like when I babysat a couple of kids this summer, like one of yeah. them hated doing reading. And so it was just like, I'm only, my mom says I have to do it for 20 minutes. I'm only going to do it up to the 20 minutes. And it didn't, it totally took her out of that world when you put the time frame on it. Yeah. So overall, the focus on these reading programs is shifting the norms of what constitutes reading, right? So what parents should do with reading and how they should do it. And it's taking the enjoyment out of reading. One mom said that her kid was a successful reader, but getting them to do like the reading response activities just made it miserable. Um, So there's this continual surveillance by parents, which is it's unquestioned because literacy is positioned as necessary. So it's really the means by which the literacy is happening. That's the problem. Um, and they also mentioned that it wasn't in the study, that, but that for the working class families, like you mentioned, the monthly projects involved a lot of monetary expenses that were a problem. I'm sure. And you know that like the kids that have more money, they're going to show up with like this poster covered in like the latest glitter glues and all the like extra stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's going to be off. Ob- those differences are going to be very obvious when they show those. 
I also feel like this talks to a bigger problem of how there's this narrative that what happens at home matters so much. Like if you don't do the right things at home, your kid's never going to be on grade level reading or never going to get to this good school. And like that narrative has really permeated the way that people parent, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of contradicting things about what is the right thing to do at home. And so I think when they get these like threatening letters from schools yeah. that are like, this is what you have to do at home. They're like, Oh, this is what the quote research is saying. I'm doing, I have to do at home for my kids to learn how to read. Cause they don't know. All they know is they have to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, it's like the same as like all those, um, the like developmental baby things where it's like your baby should be, doing this this and this at six months and if they're not there's a huge problem and it's like but like what's the research behind that or how outdated is that research who are they studying yes like yeah um so anyway what's happening with these reading programs is that at-home bedtime reading or other practices are now focused on kids demonstrating reading and parents monitoring and recording those demonstrations so that reading is not this social activity between between like parents and kids it is this like you're doing this in this one way and i'm watching you do it in this particular way like that's what it is becoming um so my cnot quote is this extra layering of educational work means that students academic performance is more and more contingent on what the home situation and family educational capital allows creating an even greater disparity for families with less resources in terms of time and cultural capital. Rather than family literacy practices being a site of enjoyment, they can all too easily become a site of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, is getting back to like what your article is about. Totally. So some teacher takeaways. <laughs> Explore and identify what homework practices are necessary and how they might be a more positive experience. So for example, reading logs, they're super common. I saw some when I taught high school, like ninth graders are being given reading logs. And it's like, you have to do this every night, get your parents. Like, no, like some, some kids, like their parents worked like third shift and they wouldn't see them. But then it becomes the same, like you didn't get this thing signed by your parent for reading. Like, it's just, what's the point of reading logs? Are they actually getting students to read? I don't think so. I think they're getting students to like lie on a reading log. Or if they are, they're... I feel like they're emphasizing the importance of quantity over enjoyment. Exactly. Exactly. My homework for students was always like, read a book or write in your notebook. And the thing is, if you found the perfect book for a kid or they found the perfect book for themselves, that was not even an issue. They're totally going to read it at home. 100%. And that experience positively shapes how they view themselves as readers, not giving them reading homework. And I think that's the real work that teachers need to focus on. Like, Let's find the text that your kids are so excited to engage in that they leave school and they can't help but being dragged back into that world, right? Maybe that's like nonfiction and they find like a website, I don't know, some kind of sports website or something that they love the articles on it and they're reading that at home. Or, or maybe even it graphic is novels. Book. Graphic novels. They're yeah. like devouring them. Like that's the real work that we should be doing. I was good friends with the literacy coach at my school. And whenever a kid would come in to our office and be like, oh, I just hate reading. She'd always be like, you don't hate reading. You just hate the books that you've been asked to read. Like, exactly. let's go to the book room yes. and let's find you a book. Yes. Yes. It was like my joy to find kids books that they actually wanted to read. It was so fun because kids would be like, why well, didn't know that this is what it could be? 
Yeah. <laughs> when a teacher doesn't say, just like, go home and read this one book. Like reading is enjoyable. Also, another teacher takeaway, reflect on the reading program you have. What are the expectations involved? So for example, those book reports, oh my God, that is way too much. And like Catherine said earlier, <laughs> I can guarantee you that the kids are not doing them in some families. Like for sure. Their moms are for sure doing them. So why is that the expectation? We need quality over quantity. Um, and then the last one is if homework is an essential part of the curriculum, whatever that means, make sure that all students have equal access. And I was thinking about the digital divide a lot for this episode, and I found some articles, but I ultimately decided not to go there. But I think that's something to consider too, because there's just so much stuff on Google Classroom that's happening now. And I know that like for, for a lot of schools, there's now one-to-one Mm -hmm. uh, technology, but I don't know that that necessarily means one-to-one. Like, do your students have access to the internet regularly? Because I think a lot of those contracts are up now, you know, where they used to have like, yep. you have the hotspots, the hot spots. And like a lot of that's not happening anymore. Also, like, do other family members need to use devices? Like, that's a big consideration. It's not just that this kid has this laptop on them 24-7 is always able to access all of these things. They might also have other responsibilities, there's so many more things going on after school. I guess ultimately I agree with you in that I am anti-homework. I have a question for you. Yeah. One of the main arguments that I have heard for kids to need to read at home mm -hmm. is because they can't use the class time to read the assigned novels because the class time should be used engaging with students and the ideas around the novel. So they have to read the novels at home. What's your response? I mean, sure. You can do some of that, but I think, but I think in that case, teachers are also talking about like, that's also quantity over quality because I think what's happening there is teachers are assigning everybody a book every like month or two. And they're like, and this is the novel for this unit. And you're going to read this, you know, like, sure. In that case, you're just speeding through it. Then I'm sure you don't have time to read in class. I don't know. I just feel like the quality is, is more important. So like, why wouldn't you take time in class? I mean, even when what I had... What if you can't? Because it's not up to you. So like somebody else makes the curriculum and they're like, there's never time for reading in class. I, don't, I mean, I just don't know what that looks like. Like, what are you doing every day? Like, you're know. just you're just like... I just know that in the district that I worked in, like the middle school books were set. And so every eighth grader at the beginning of the year read the same book. For the most part, they worked, they actually did work really hard so that they weren't like old, like the old canon books. They were like, it, they weren't like reading Shakespeare. They were like new YA books that most of the kids enjoyed. But at the same time, because they had this like prescriptive curriculum, they had to, teachers felt that they had to rely on kids reading at home mm -hmm. in order to engage with the standards that they had to engage with in the classroom. I don't know. I just, that seems like you're maybe doing too much because the, the thing about the standards is like, those can be really applied various ways. It's really, if, if there's a prescribed curriculum, that's that's the district coming up with all of these things that like you have to do this, this, and this. Because I really think that so many standards are like 
very malleable to say like, I'm reading this today and it's also covering, kids are reading this and it's covering this standard, this standard, this standard, this standard. Like I just using every single day to, cause I'm imagining what's happening is they're like having to be in lit circles every single day or like, I don't know, like you have some kind of readers theater. I don't know. It's just like activities around the book every single day seems to get old and like just seems, it would seem difficult to me to like not have, periods of time where kids would be reading in class because then like how do you I think when you don't see kids actively engaged in reading like I think that there are things that you're not anticipating there might be difficulties that kids are having that you can't have conversations with them in the moment about you know like because for me having conferences with students was like the very core of my teaching and so even in reading units like I would be going around to students and being like so what's happening right now what are you visualizing what's going on you know like if they did all that reading at home it would be really difficult for me to know like if they were engaging or if there were other issues like I just that seems tough because you're not going to get all that information from like a short answer response or like a pop quiz or even like listening to them in a literature circle like you're just not so I don't I feel like you're really missing out on something if kids aren't reading in class I love that idea Good job. Thank you. Good job to you. Thank you. Down with homework. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. This episode was brought to you by Anna, our social media queen. (laughs) Emma, our sound queen. Mm -hmm. Check us out on the socials. Yeah. On Instagram at School Spirits Podcast. And Twitter at School Spirits underscore. Yep. And our website. Yeah. By the time you hear this. All of our archived drink recipes should be up there. Nice. We also would love to hear from you on the website. Send us a note. We got a note, our first note from Nolan, whoever you are out there. We would really appreciate the note. So please keep them coming. We thrive on words of affirmation. Yes, it is our podcast love language. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cheers. Cheers.